0: You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gardner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about animations and movements and how to use them effectively with data visualization. Today's guest is someone that is really, really awesome. She has so much knowledge about data visualization. She has worked with world-class institutions like MIT and helped even the BBC with her work in showing better the data and making sure that everybody can understand data, for example around elections or around the corona crisis. Listen to this episode, you'll get a lot out of it. There's also the PSI conference coming up, and she's also speaking there. So look up for the PSI conference and check for Irene de la Torre uh, Arenas. Uh, you can find all the complete name in the show notes and check that out. I'm also speaking at the PSI conference, and so you still have time to register for it, it's com- completely virtual and it has lots of lots of great content. There's not just presentations, but there is also lots of social interactions. So check that out. If you then want to become a member, which you will be if you attend the PSI conference, then you can find all of that including much more activities at psiweb.org to learn what PSI does and why it may make sense to not only uh, register for the conference but become a PSI member and check out all the other things that is coming there. Welcome to another episode! Today I'm talking with Irina. How are you doing this morning?
1: I'm good, thank you. How are you?
0: Very good. I'm quite excited about the topic today because it has been something I'm experimenting with for quite some time and now I'm really glad to have someone on the podcast that is actually an expert in it and that (laughs) is how to use motions and animations in your data visualization so tell me a little bit how did you come to think about this topic
1: yeah so i was doing my master thesis and i was finding topics and at the beginning I wanted to do it about how charts live. <laughs> and my advisor told me no don't do that there are too many research about that <laughs> you go um, and he mentioned doing something around motion animations etc and it wasn't supposed to be a taxonomy it was just going to be an exploration of what you can do but while I was doing the state of the art and kind of going through all these amazing projects I am kind of an an organization obsessed (laughs) I really like everything to have kind of a specific order and cluster things that have specific things uh, that are similar between each other so I ended up doing these these groups among the the projects that I was seeing seeing um, what are the things that or the characteristics that they have in common and by the end of, of writing the state of the art I had a taxonomy of how to use motion in data visualization and the funny thing is that I thought that you know it was just one thing a master thesis you you finish it and then you never come back to it that's a lie Uh, it has come back to to me quite often and I use it very very often now Um, and every time that I have to use these implementations I think okay about the thesis um what is it that i i saw here does this actually fit in in what you were thinking and most of the times it does so yeah
0: was there any particular data visualization that was animated or that had motion in it that inspired you to work on this topic
1: there were a few one of them is We Feel Fine. It's a visualization from 2005 or 2006. And uh, let's see if I remember everything. They collected posts from Blogger, from the blog yeah. site platform of Google, and they analyzed it, how people felt, if it, they were happy, if they were sad, etc. And I didn't know about this project. My advisor told me about it. And it's full of colors. Or it's full of movement. It, it really tells you how people are feeling and right now I don't think you can even access it it's c- quite old in the internet <laughs> it's <laughs> not old <laughs> and it used I'm not sure if it used Java or Flash but it, I remember having problems to, to see it five years ago but it was fascinating to see it was just so so beautiful right Um, so mm-hmm. that was one it was actually the first project that came to my mind when you made that question so (laughs) that says something the other project was done by my advisor pedro cruz um it's about traffic in in lisbon so he used a metaphor of kind of a heart right so if there's too much traffic the cars cluster the heart it's hard to breathe it's hard to move along Mm. and if the traffic is 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 okay and you can circulate in the roads then it's a healthy heart right and it's also very very beautiful um he in particular pedro is he's just an amazing designer visualizer i would totally recommend taking his work because it's really really inspiring
0: yeah by the way we'll put lots of show notes into uh this episode because Obviously, you can't see what we are talking about. So uh, check out statistician.com, find this episode with Irina, and then, you know, check all the links to these amazing data visualizations. For me, actually, one of the most inspiring data visualizations in that regard is Hans Rosling's presentation, where you see the health and wealth. Of, of nations developing over the 20th century and how there's overall actually a very, very good movement from you know, very poor, dying very young into an area where people are, or nations are rather rich and live quite, quite long. And of course you can see then over the century, kind of, you know, World War II, for example, or you can see the HIV epidemic in, especially in Africa. And uh, you can see how you know, certain events had an impact on certain countries. Yeah, so so certain so bigger political events. And that's really, really fascinating to see. But it, it tells this very amazing story of how the world is developing. It's an awesome four-minute video. Together with the BBC and that inspired me to kind of think about how can we use this effectively in clinical research and beyond
1: yeah, I think a minder is, is an incredible example of what transitions do f- to your chart if you're using it in a good way and it has become now such a symbol it's not only a video. Now, then it was moved into an interactive chart, and now it's a whole platform about how the world is improving through time, and you can play around. But the ba- like the original Gapminder, so that scatter plot, it, it, it is there. And every time that I play it, it is really interesting.
0: Yeah, you can always kind of look at it again and again and again, and you see kind of smaller stories and the bigger story. If you have a book. And that has, you know, this main story part, but, you know, there's these little stories and this love story or the story of a friendship and, and so on. And um, the same you see in these uh, really amazing visualizations, these stories of individual countries, for example, for Gatminder or for special, you know, specific historic events. So, yeah, it's it's really, really interesting. And I had something similar when I first applied it to some data myself that I was seeing that physicians who were looking into the data also were looking at it again and again and said, every time I look at it, there's something new I see in there. So it's it's really fascinating. Okay, so how can we actually use motion and movement into our shots. What, what are the different aspects there? First, how does it separate from other aspects in, in data visualization more, more generally?
1: Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I thought about starting this, this research is usually designers kind of distrust animations. <laughs> Especially if we think in a normal context, like a PowerPoint, right? You you say, I don't want to add this. But it's a very, very effective implementation. It's actually one of the things along color, orientation, size, stereoscopic depth. So if something is is further away from us or if it's blurrier, etc. that really catches our eye, especially if it's in the corner in the peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I think it's just biology is something that we use for knowing if we are safe or if there's an animal around that wants to eat us. <laughs> so of course now we are in a safer environment but that still works it's very effective to our eye and we use it for our charts right so we use color to highlight or to differentiate um, categories we use orientation especially um, for indicating i don't know flows or sunkeys for example we use size etc so it we we employ these attributes in our data visualization, but usually motion and transitions tend to happen as the last thing that we add on, as a, something that is nice to have. And the, the, the main problem is when we do that without really thinking, okay, what is the What is what I want to accomplish with this uh, implementation here? What is what I want this animation to do in my overall design? So that's when I started doing this categorization. What are the the functions that the motions are doing in the visualizations? And what I basically found out is that there are four ways of using this in an effective way. And of course, it can go wrong really easily, like with anything, especially in design. Uh, But they, they tend to be quite interesting. So the first one is it's probably the, the most straightforward for me which is data that is portrayed as motion because it's basically motion it's personal so think about vis- Can you
0: give an example yeah for that
1: think, think about visualizations where we are showing traffic flows or or movements or weather changes so there's this Amazing visualization, the wind map that shows uh, currents of air in the United States, and it shows you the flow, what is the orientation, the speed, etc. That visualization actually influenced another designer to do a very famous visualization tool called Earth, which is just the planet Earth, and you can see the the you can see the wind currents, you can see sea currents, uh, temperature, etc. And from there. You can now see how wind is portrayed in, in the weather in the weather section of TV news <laughs> in such a way yeah. because it's very effective. You see it very well how where the wind is coming from, if it's a strong, if it's slow, etc. So it's basically both so this is
0: really when you have time as a variable in your data set. So and then you use kind of that time to kind of also protect portray it in your movie and, you know, and you can have have it speed it up or slow down or uh, different ways of of showing it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It can be done in two ways. So if the data has position and time, then it's kind of display movement. That is a traffic flow that we were talking about. If it Mm -hmm. only has time, and we want to use it as a metaphor, then it can be encoded in an indirect way. So I'm trying to think about a project that I did about coronavirus where we use a metaphor of a flower and it was showing how coronavirus cases and deaths changed through time. And we have obviously data for every every day and it was a a metaphorical flower for everyone that was kind of uh, suffering through this whole pandemic. Obviously that's not movement. But there's an animation in there and we use it as a way to explain that cases are rising really, really fast or uh, that are happening also very fast or not. So it's something that has to be related to time. But it's also true that you can use this type of information uh, without the data having time. So imagine that you want to show, I don't know, I'm going to, to use another project of mine, corruption in the different states of uh, America. And you want to kind of encode that the more corruption, the more difficult it is to to see something or the the more barriers you have in order to to find the specific information. You can use it by encoding corruption into a visual shape that has motion there, so an animation. And then that's not related to time, it's not related to, to, to movement per se, but you're using an animation to explain that... There's something there that is avoiding you to get what you want.
0: Yeah, I think that is similar to a project where I was looking into and we had disease severity as kind of the the variable which we encoded with motion. Because we were thinking kind of, okay, for that, it was a progressive chronic disease. And so over time, you will deteriorate, yeah, Continually, of course, it goes ups and downs. Yeah. But you can think of yourself as well, you start with uh, mild symptoms. It, it was Alzheimer's. Yeah. You start with mild symptoms and you, you know, you progress over time. And then the more you progress, yeah, you see how different parts of your cognitive space are affected. Yeah. So, memory cognition ultimately speech yeah and so you could use there instead of time as a variable you used overall severity mm-hmm. and i think that's that's in the same way here you used kind of in in the flower example you have number of cases yeah worldwide or within a specific uh, country there was one piece in this flower that I found really really nice is that you had the um, so to say the face of the flower as this round circle and then they are you know like a clock that goes around there you had these different visualizations that shows it and I, I thought that kind of similarity with the analog clock is really a nice way to visualize time and to kind of show that, especially if you have something like a day or year or something, you know, more periodic. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that, that flower actually took a long time to, <laughs> to finalize. It's, it is a timeline, right? It's a radial timeline. And the initial, so what I'm I'm going to explain it a little bit for people who might not know what the project is about. So again, it's about coronavirus and this metaphorical flower has different parts. So the tail, the the stem, sorry, is, it basically rose as a cumulative cases in a country or in the world uh, grows. And then the petals are people who have died of coronavirus in a specific day. So you basically see the flower growing through time and it becomes kind of beautiful. It's, it's really sad when you realize what the data is about and that's the whole point of, of the project. But it basically, the petals create a, a radial timeline of how many people have died through the last six months. I think it, yeah, the data, we, we, we published it in December. So it, it was six months of the pandemic. And it's quite interesting for me, that timeline was quite interesting first because you really can see the, the different waves coming through the different the continents, the countries, et cetera. But it also showed quite well, I'm gonna say blobs. <laughs> yeah. So issues with the data. For example, I'm in Spanish, so one of the first flowers that I really wanted to see is is Spain. And what happened there is that in June the country decided to change how they were counting the the number of deaths. So they didn't publish data for a while while they were kind of constructing these new or collecting all the data they needed for this new way, new way of counting, and then by the end of July they publish in one day. I don't know how many deaths, thousand. So you you get this huge petal, and then the flower continues normally. But um, it's really interesting to see kind of this this these issues with the data in in such a way because then you really see where something happened with the counting. <laughs> and it makes again the flowers quite unique and it's I feel very weird speaking about it in this tone because it's again it's it's a really sad data set
0: yeah well I also like about this with the petals is that you kind of see what happened yeah so I think that is one of the parts with movement is kind of you only see at a given moment that part yeah. So uh, if you think back about the gapminder thing, yeah, at any given time point, you can only see where the nations now. You don't. You you need to remember where they started, mm. but here with these petals, um, you still see kind of the uh, the past timeline, and uh, it's it's a nice additional feature in there. So that helps you to see it as uh animated, but also still the kind of timeline and I've seen that sometimes in graphs where they you know you have a uh, yeah just a regular line chart, yeah, and you have time in the study, and then they show okay, first kind of what happens up to week two, what happens up to week six what happens up to week 12 and then what happens up to one year yeah and so it's animated in that way and helps with the storytelling but it kind of still is you know this this animation and you see what happened up to that time point.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah and that links to the second type of of motion in, in this taxonomy which is interpolation of Of values, right? So when our data is not very granular, when we have clinical studies that have happened through a week, we don't have data of every single day sometimes, but we still want to have a general idea. And if we use animation at the end, what we do is connect these weeks through an interpolation, and then we see how the chart kind of changes through time. Gapminder is that we don't have uh, data for every single day of every single year. It's just that when we animate the years in, in our animation, they are connected. There's kind of an algorithm that says, okay, your starting position is, is, is X and you need to go to Y. Uh, let's calculate what yeah. happens in yeah. between. And we actually do that in, in PowerPoint quite quite often, right? When we want to move things. So it's, it's something that we do very often and we see very often the bar chart races is, Just exactly that. So, one of the problems with uh, motion that you were mentioning before is that you need to pay attention. The moment you kind of move your eyes, you're missing part of the story. So, it needs to be very engaging. It needs to be easy to follow, easy to understand. Then also think about okay, what is the final image that I'm giving? Because the other points are missing. The only points only last for. A second, let's say. So it's something that is a cognitive kind of effort because you need to be watching in order to get all the, all
0: the information. Actually, that's also what I found to be really difficult to find the right speed of the animation. Yeah. We put a lot of effort into kind of you know, having it faster, having it slower, maybe even have pauses in it. Yeah, you know, so that people could see what is happening at a specific time point for a longer time or maybe, you know, at that point then have some kind of text appearing so that people can see it. What's your experience in that regard?
1: So I didn't think about it much while I was doing this this thesis. So the, giving the power of to to the user to stop, let's say, you no, know, to control the animation, but it was something very very important when I was working at the BBC. So it's an accessibility rule to let users control a video, to let users to stop an animation, etc. Especially because there's people who. have motion issues so they might actually get very very dizzy when watching an animation so it's important to think about these these things and right now my advice would be allow the user to to stop allow the user to pause allow the user to restart or go to the end so really give the power to the user for them to control whatever is happening in the screen
0: yeah yeah that's that's very good have some kind of default settings that you can then alter. And yeah, I very much like the kind of you know, fast forward, fast backward kind of stuff. That we use at at least that I know from from the tapes that I was (laughs) using decades ago. Yeah okay. I
1: use tapes too. That's the video behavior, right? That's what videos do and is it's something that we might have forgotten while doing cool stuff in internet and then we thought, mm, there's something missing here and it's the control. <laughs> yeah.
0: What's the third way, the third taxonomy?
1: Yeah. I would say that that's one of the most important ones, which is uh, motion as a storytelling device. Uh, it has a very, very nice name. It's one of my favorites. Um, it's basically using animations and transitions to explain to the user what's happening in the screen. So it's not only in a scrollytelling kind of allowing the user to interact with whatever the the animation is is doing. But it's also, if we are doing, for example, a Shiny app, Mm -hmm. and we are interacting with, we are zooming in or zooming out, or we are selecting a specific data sets and the chart changes, it's all the transitions that we should implement in order to tell the user, be careful, be aware, just, by interacting with the data, you're modifying the chart, So the scales are changing, the way you're displaying or sorting the data is also changing. You might be just zooming in into a specific attribute and highlighting it instead of the other ones, right? So these are all the design cues that we use to tell the user the chart has changed because you have interacted with it. And it might sound superfluous, but I think it's really, really important, especially with charts that in which the interaction changes the scale and the axis. Yes,
0: yeah, that's, that's nice. So for example, that when you change from a linear scale to a logarithmic scale, it's not just a click, but it kind of transitions and you see you know how the curve is shape uh changing yeah so how for example an exponential curve becomes a linear curve on a logarithmic scale things like that so Mm. uh yeah. yeah yeah
1: yeah because i think if you don't add that you might lose it especially when the lines might be very close together because it's just then the number changing. The position of the lines are still the same. Then you you won't notice it at all. So and is 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 an important information that you're changing the the range of your axis when <laughs> when especially if you're analyzing the data. So it's I th- yeah I think it's it's a very interesting use of motion that we should think about more and more if we if we do more dashboards and if we do more interactive visualizations that allow the research to interact with the child. I
0: think that also makes, makes it much easier to see what is exactly happening. So I'm just thinking about if you have a scatter plot on a, a linear scale and you change it to a logarithmic scale. Yeah. And it just kind of goes from in, you know, a millisecond from one to another. You don't see how these individual points are moving. You just see before and after but if you have this transition you can actually see okay ah these groups of points here they move to here and that group here stayed more or less there yeah and so you don't see that if you have just two two pictures
1: yeah you're right i think it's it's telling you exactly what is happening so (laughs) it's it's also very engaging i think Again, this goes back to the beginning. So motion really catches our eye. And if we do this, it's not only giving information, but it is making something a little bit nicer.
0: Yeah, and you also don't get lost. I'm just thinking of of a map. Yeah. And with the, if, if you use Google Maps or something like this, you zoom in and it's, you know, not just a click that you kind of, from one moment to the other, you're, really, really close in the map that it zooms in and therefore you can really kind of see, okay, okay, this is now the smaller part of this bigger part. I know exactly kind of where it was oriented on on the um, uh, less granular map. And so that makes it really, really easy to, to see kind of, okay, where's it coming?
1: Yeah, especially for areas that you don't know where they are. So mm-hmm. if you're seeing a map for example in in Germany seems we both are here <laughs> and, and yours you want to zoom into for example I don't know a city that is an outlier or you want to, to find a specific thing but you don't know that the location you could you let's say you could write it in a search and then you click and you zoom in into that area right if there's no if there's no animation and you don't know where that air specific area is then you don't really know where it is. So actually the motion and the zooming in is telling you, okay, this place is located in this specific place. So it's uh, it, it's giving you information.
0: To- yeah. So really kind of you see first the map of Germany and then it zooms into Munich or it zooms into Kastrup-Rauxel, which you probably don't know where it is if you're not from Germany. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. And that's basically what the the scrollies, these scrollies that we see so often do, right? They guide you and they use motion kind of like telling you a general view, then you, then you zoom in, then you do something different. And it's really what movies do at the end of the day. So it, when we think about these implementations, it's also good to kind of do a small storyboards and think about, okay, what is the story? What do I want to do? How, how do I use it?
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. That's a very good point. It's very similar to techniques that you see in movies. Yeah. Where also kind of they zoom in instead of kind of just making a new take. Yeah. And, and that way you can see that it's a part of a bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's the, uh, what's the last taxonomy that we need to speak about? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so the last one is uh, the shiniest one. It's uh, called motion as a captivator. So it's that type of motion that is not is not data, is uh, not an interpolation, and is not used to guide you th- through the visualization. But it is still is still very very interesting, very nice to see, and it actually is what drags you to the visualization and lets you stay with it. So my 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 thinking was there's so many implementations of motion where there's no supposed value on it. But because of it, it catches your attention. And then once you've realized it, what you're seeing, it looks interesting, so you stay with it. The ideal situation would be that this type of motion is used alongside another one. So. Data's motion is also captivating. That interpolations are also very nice to see. I think a Minder is a really good example of how captivating and how aesthetically pleasing animations can be. And then also, if, use a pro- if used well, motion as a storytelling can also be very interesting to see and and be very pleasing to the eye. It was during my my thesis I also researched about aesthetics Mm -hmm. and and it was very interesting because there's actually mathematical formulas that try to calculate when something is beautiful. And at the end of the day, the the thing that I like it the most and is the the thing that I'm going to explain is that there's a formula that says that there's a balance between complexity and easy to, to understand and motion Fits into this quite well. So if if this implementation is very complex, but it's actually helping you to understand what you're seeing, then it's a good use of motion. If this is if these animations are very shiny, very fancy, and it catches your eye, but it doesn't give you anything back, then that's not a good use of motion, and you will actually frustrate the user, the viewer. So don't do that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah 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 so it needs to be i think that's interesting so to see beauty aesthetic as a as a function in itself because it attracts the people and i i'm pretty sure it also makes things easier to memorize but is it
1: there's a there's a very very interesting research by michelle borkins and i was actually reading it this week for for a workshop and the her first research in 2013 showed that people tend to remember uh, things that have photographs icons things that really relate to us much better than just abstract charts and especially people tend to remember charts that tend to be different to, to what they see every day. So bar charts and line charts, even though they're very useful, they are not remembered that well because we are surrounded by them. This was kind of problematic <laughs> regarding ch- the chart junk of, of Dafty. So in 2015, she did another research about memorability and efficacy. So when, how can we make a chart not only memorable, but also in a way that we remember the message mm-hmm. uh, that the chart is displaying? Because we might remember an infographic, but, but we don't really remember the, the whole point of the infographic. And it was very interesting because some of the charts actually improve if they have labels, if they have numbers, if they have titles. But the the whole point of this is sometimes we are scared of doing things differently because people are not used to them. But that's also a good way of attracting them to what we are doing. The key is that even if it's something that is complicated, that is not traditional, the key is test it and make it as understandable and accessible as possible. So that first you catch catch their attention. And then once they are seeing it, they understand it and they like it, and they get the message.
0: Yeah, I can completely relate to that. I was once sitting at a conference, and it was about medical data. And there were lots of clinical studies shown. And most of them had pretty much the same design. And so I was seeing the same bar charts, the same line graphs, again and again and again and again. Uh, Even on the same variables, just different studies. And... In the end, you don't really remember, okay, what was the real outcome here, yeah, because you had the feeling like well, there was just another line chart with different colors, but I don't remember it, whereas if you can think of you know think back about the Gapminder examples that we had at the beginning, yeah it's really it's not only. Interesting data. It's also beautiful data. He knows the whole setup. How he s- stands behind this transparent screen that you know looks like it's hanging in thin air. Really, kind of this Star Trek kind of atmosphere, but in this loft environment, um, it's really, really nice and beautiful as well. And I think that that has a, really a feature in it, yeah. So that you can remember it, 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 You know, there's some more kind of emotional attachment to it. And if you get the emotions involved, then people will remember the facts much better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree.
1: <laughs> it's it's a difficult thing because you still want to. You still want to use the same chart if you're comparing results, right? You don't want to be changing in every slide. But I one of the things that we did at the MIT Sensible City Lab was okay, so the figures in the research paper are the traditional ones, but then let's complement it with a page that explains this data in a different way that is really using the full power of visualization and the combination with, with the latest techniques. And it's really effective because you, you, at least for me, obviously I'm, I'm, I think I'm trained for this. So I don't remember the figures, but I remember the visualizations.
0: Yeah, and so it's not a either or, doing both. It's both. Yeah. 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 Very good. Awesome. So we talked quite a lot now about animations and movements and what you can do with it. We um, had lots of examples that we'll refer to in the, in the show notes. so make sure to go to the effective statistician.com and um, find Arena's episode here. And we looked through these different taxonomies, how you can use visualization. And you can combine these into one, try it out. Yeah. Uh, Especially with the different software that is out there. There's lots of kind of on the shelf, off the shelf software. There's, you know, things like you can try out in flourish, for example, there's, you know, this bar race that we talked about, There's GG Animate that you can use in art to animate stuff. So have a try. Also, we had on the wonderful Wednesday of the special interest group, we have a couple of different examples where we had the typical clinical data sets, but we have animations in it, yeah, you know, or some movements in it. And so also check out the, uh, these webinars and the corresponding blog will also link to that in the, in the show notes. So Thanks so much, Irina, for this awesome episode. Any final thoughts that you would like to have the listener as, as a key takeaway?
1: I, I would repeat what you said. Uh, try it out. <laughs> this is all learned by practice. And, and then also show it to people. So test it, because sometimes we do really cool things, and that has happened to me, and then no one understands it, which is... Not really what we want, <laughs> <laughs> but try it out and do it and yep. have fun with it. I think that's the the best part of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. And uh, talk to you soon. There will be more episodes coming with Irina. So stay tuned for more great stuff here. This show was created in association with PSI and check out the upcoming conference at psiweb.org. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com, where you find the show notes with all the links that we talked about. Reach your potential, link, great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.